morning. Take your Bibles and go to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. If you're a note taker, I'd like to give us three terms, three terms that I'm going to define, I'm going to use throughout my message this morning that I think are important uh, in us reflecting and thinking about the year ahead, the, the new year coming. Christmas is a time of reflection, is it not? You sat there thinking about yesterday, hopefully I, as a part of our family tradition, we read the, the, the Luke 2 story and begin to think about the Christ of Christmas. It's not about the gifts that are under the tree. It's not about the, the family get-togethers that we have. It's not about the, the barbecuing and, the, and the, the ham or the traditions of your family that you typically have. It really is about Christ coming as, to give of Himself, humbled Himself, as, as Philippians chapter 2 would tell us, and, and to take on the form of a man so that He could be that perfect sacrifice that God required to appease His wrath for our sin. It's interesting that Christmas and New Year's are so close together, isn't it? Christmas is a time of reflecting on what Christ has done, the gift of Christ to come, whereas New Year's is the reflection oftentimes of what am I going to do this next year? I don't know about you, but I, I, I tend to set some, some goals for the, for the new year. I don't know how good I, I am at keeping some of those goals, but I always try to maintain certain types of goals, and you might be in the same boat. Like, for instance, I, I like to set the goal of, I'm going to read the Bible through this year. If you've done that type of a plan, that's, that's fantastic. There are several good plans that are helpful in helping one accommodate and, and accomplish that. It seems like a, a great, um, you know, a, 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 a big Monument, uh, monument, right, of a task to accomplish, a goal to do and achieve, but yet reality is when I bring it down and get slowly into it, I know I can do it. It's easy to get into the book of Leviticus and begin to read through the generations of people to think, oh man, I can't get through this anymore. It's so dry. I can't even pronounce the name that's here. <laughs> you know, begat is, is as good as I'm going to get when it comes to this. And it, and, it's, and it slows down, the momentum slows down, and it gets discouraging. And sometimes we lose a day, and we think, oh, I'll catch up tomorrow. And then we lose tomorrow, and we can't, oh. And then the snowball effect begins to happen, and next thing you know, six months have gone by, and you're thinking, oh, man, I have failed. We think of resolutions, sometimes it's, it's, they're good things at times. I'd like to lose 30 pounds, right, that, that, that New Year's resolution. I'd like to be better at spending my money. I'd like to, and you begin to fill in the gap, whatever, whatever it is that you tend to have as a resolution to be thinking about and reflecting on. This morning from Luke chapter 14, I'm going to show us, I'd like to show us from God's Word that being a follower of Jesus requires you to have a new perspective on the details of your life. So as I told you, I'd like to define three terms, and then we'll read our text, and then we'll ask God's blessing on our time this morning. Beginning with, as you hear me say things, I think it's important that we have an idea of what is it that, that the speaker is, is referring to. How is he defining the term so that we can all be on the same page? Number one, a disciple. A disciple. A disciple is a lifelong follower and learner of Jesus. They already know that, Jason. That's great, but let me give you a second piece to that. Here's the idea. A disciple conveys the idea of an apprentice, not a mere student. 
There is a difference between a student and an apprentice, isn't there? Sometimes we think of discipleship in the realm of just a student. I'm here to learn. If you're in school today or the, during the school year, you know that being a student isn't all that glamorous. You got, you got the material that you need to learn, and then you've got to be tested over that material and how well you've obtained and learned that material. You have some of the same types of tests as an apprentice, but the difference between that student and an apprentice idea is the apprentice is more hands-on, one-on-one, isn't it? means I'm coming alongside of somebody else who's teaching me the trade, the tools of the trade, the, necessity, the, ne- the necessary things that I need to know to be successful in that trade, to be successful in the, in the other areas that I'm learning and working through. So if I'm going to be a disciple, I really have to look at it from a, a perspective. I'm an apprentice. I need to be learning from somebody else. How do I accomplish this? How do I do this effectively? How do I do it successfully? Number two, discipleship. What is discipleship? That's another term that gets thrown around quite a bit. Discipleship is leveraging all that I am in Christ and all that I have in Christ with the purpose of becoming and helping others become more like Jesus. I like that first, that first word in that definition, leveraging. I mean, I'm taking a hold and I'm grasping and I'm pulling with all the strength that I have. But really, in the reality of this, as we're going to see from the text, it's not about me. It's about Christ in me. Leveraging all that I am in Christ. Colossians chapter 3 is probably one of my favorite texts in all of Scripture, one of my favorite chapters It describes our identity as it's found in Christ and in Christ alone. And when my identity and my eyes are focused in on Jesus, how much easier it really is that I bring others along. It becomes the true example of of 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Follow after me as I follow Jesus. Because the simple thing is when my eyes are fixed on Jesus, when my eyes are gazing on Christ, I just want you to come along and experience the journey with me. It's so exciting. The things that I'm learning, the things I'm, I'm understanding about who my God and my Savior are, that I cannot help for you to come along with me Leveraging all that I am in Christ and all that I have in Christ with the purpose of becoming and helping others become more like Jesus. And the third term I'd like for us to to define this morning, I think is important as we begin to look at Luke chapter 14. It's a two-word term. I guess it's not technically a term, but gospel opportunity. Gospel opportunity. This is defined as divine appointments that intentionally build relationships with the goal of sharing the gospel. Divine appointments that intentionally build relationships with the goal of sharing the gospel. Folks, this morning as a follower of Jesus, you have divine appointments in your life. Every one of us do. The question is, do I look at these divine appointments, these gospel opportunities with the perspective that Christ is in my heart and working through me so that I could be a light to somebody else? Working through that. Let's go to Luke chapter 14. I'm going to read verses 25 to 35, a a larger text here, and then we'll pray 
and, uh, and dig into the truth of God's Word this morning. The Word of God says, Luke chapter 14, And there went great multitudes with him. And he turned and said to them, If any man come to me, and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me, cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, sitteth not down first, and counteth the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it? Lest haply, after he had laid the foundation, and is not able to finish it, and all that behold it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build, and was not able to finish. Or what king, going to war against another king, sitteth not down first, and consulteth, whether he be able with 10,000 men that cometh against him and 20,000. Or else, while the other is yet a great way off, he sendeth an ambassador or an ambassador and desireth conditions of peace. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost his savor, wherewith shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land, nor yet fit for the dunghill, but men cast it out. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Let's open with a word of prayer this morning. Jesus, as we come to you, we thank you for the gift. Lord, as these ladies just sang about, consider the gift of Christmas, the Christ, that you would come, take on the form of man, so that you could die on the cross for our sin to appease God's wrath. God, I pray that as we open your word this morning, you would help our hearts to be open to it. I pray that you would help us to look at it accurately so that we could apply it appropriately. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As I mentioned, it's easy for us at Christmas time to begin to reflect on the gift that is here. It's easy for us to put in the words, remind our children of what we're doing. But how many times have we used those phrases or those sentences and those thought processes with really no consideration of what we're really talking about? The Christ of Christmas, the gift that we're here to celebrate, and yet our intention, our mind is on, what did I get this year? Oh, I hope my wife really read my mind this year with what I was looking for. I hope my spouse was, was able to accomplish, and we begin to think about all the worldly aspects of those things. As Rusty reminded us this morning, how easy it is for us to, to get in love with the things of the world rather than the things of the love of Christ. Put that next door to this new year coming up this next weekend, and we tend to magnify both of those things. We reflect on what Christ has done for us, and we think about the year ahead. It's often this week is considered to be one of the most depressing weeks. Between the, the Christmas holiday and the New Year holiday, because people are thinking about the money that they spent on gifts that they couldn't afford. People are thinking about the goals that they were hoping to achieve, and yet knowing they have less than a week to achieve them, of big important things that they wanted to accomplish. They're looking ahead to the New Year, thinking, I don't know how I'm going to make it. I don't know that I could sustain another year like this year. I don't know that I could go through the same issues and the same, the, the same problems, the same trials, the same medical issues that I went through this year and make it through. 
and we begin to reflect on those new things with great discouragement. I think being a follower of Jesus, though, allows for us to kind of put some of those perspectives into view with Christ at the center, allowing us to see Jesus first and foremost in the things that we do and the things that we speak about and the actions that we take allow for us to see really a fresh perspective that Christ is at work in and through us. And although the situations of our life might, might seem insurmountable, but I have the hope of Christ living in and through me. And sometimes even as we think about this new year coming, 2022, I might just need to gain a fresh perspective. As we'll see here in Luke chapter 14, being a follower of Jesus requires you to have a new perspective on the details of your life. Let's look at some of these details. He begins at verse 25. I want us to see, first of all, the, great, the first perspective that Jesus is getting us to change is here the crowds. The crowds. Verse 25, and there went great multitudes with him. I love that he uses, instead of just using the generic term of multitude in a singular fashion, meaning all of us here at one place, he uses multitudes in the plural, indicating they're coming from every which direction. They're not all the same. They're not all coming from the same location. It would not be uncommon for us to view if we were in Jesus' time to, to see when Jesus was taking his, his steps or he's walking to, from place to location to location that there would be a crowd that would follow him after, follow after him. And then you would see crowds coming from this direction and crowds coming from this direction and the village coming out to meet him. There are several reasons why people would follow after Jesus. And you probably know all these reasons, but it's just good to be reminded. The first is probably the most obvious, the miracles that he would perform. I mean, I don't know about you, but I would want a front row seat to that, wouldn't yeah, you? Yeah. I mean, you know a brother who's been sitting on his, on his keister here on the front of the wall. He can't walk. He can't do anything. And next thing you know, Jesus says, rise and walk. And he runs as if he was running his entire life. Or somebody you knew, maybe a family member who couldn't see, they were blind. And Jesus spits into the ground, makes a little clay, rubs it on his eyes and tells him to go wash. And he comes up and he can see as if he's never been blind before. Some of us might fear that. <laughs> Maybe they won't like me. <laughs> Maybe I tricked him on how, how beautiful I really thought I was. To see a person possessed by demons, a threat to the society that's around them. One that they would fear, not knowing the actions that would be taking. Yet with a heart of compassion, you would see how the demons would, would, would thrive in this individual and, and really torment this person. And yet with, a, with a, just a simple speech, come out of them, you unclean spirits. And the person is sitting there clothed and in their right mind. I don't know about you. I wouldn't want to miss that. I mean, I would take all my PTO for every aspect that Jesus is in town. Like, I'm going to make sure that I am there. I want to see this. They're followers to see, of Jesus to see the miraculous events and actions. They're followers of Jesus because He speaks differently than that of the scribes and the Pharisees. What does that mean? 
Mark uses the phrase several times throughout his gospel that Jesus spoke as one having authority and not as the scribes or the Pharisees. So what is that? What is Mark saying when he makes that statement? That when Jesus speaks as one having authority, he speaks using the word of God. If you notice that when Jesus speaks in the synagogues, he pulls the scroll, he reads from the scroll, and then he, he says exactly what the scroll says. The scroll in which I'm referring to is oftentimes the Old Testament texts of Scripture. They're not the traditions. They're not the, the, the word, the verbal things, uh, the, the stories, the writings of other rabbis and priests. He's speaking with the Word of God. Folks, that's just a good reminder to us that when the Word of God is spoken, there is power. It's not uncommon in our churches when the Word of God is at the center, the focal point of what we do in our services. It's not uncommon for us to hear as pastors for people to come and say, you know, there's just something different about the, the, the sermon. And the reality is it's not that we're trying to be different from, from everybody else and, and, and boring or other aspects. It's simply that we're trying to present the truth of God's Word and say, thus saith the Lord. Woe to the person. And I hope that your ears would go off and you would think if there was a, somebody in your pulpit that was saying, but I think, or here's my view, or here's my perspective. It's good to have all that, but if it's not the center of what God's Word is saying, then it's really got no place up here. Thus saith the Lord. They're following Jesus because He speaks differently. There's an attractiveness and an attraction to the way that Jesus speaks, using God and His Word at the center. Some are following after Jesus because they want to just be in the midst of the crowd. You ever met that person that just wants to be in everybody's business? They want to know it all. They don't want to miss out on a thing. They don't really want to be a part of the action. They just want to make sure that they, they don't miss out. They want to be there so they can tell the stories to their grandkids. Oh, yeah, I was able to experience that. Or you should have seen this. The irony of those people is the stories tend to be more exaggerated, don't they? You know, when I was out fishing, my fish was this big. And yet the next person, it was this big. And it begins to get bigger and bigger. And they make more of the story than what is ought to be there. And the reality, the truth that's there. They just want to be a part of the crowd. They don't want to miss out. And then you have followers of Jesus because they recognize Him as the Messiah. I don't want to neglect that. There were many who followed after Jesus because they recognized in the midst of the miracles, in the midst of the way He would speak, in the compassion and heart that He would have for the people around Him, that this truly must be the Messiah that God has promised. This is the gift of Christmas. And I want to follow after Him. I want to devote my life to Him. You know, many people follow after Jesus today for a lot of the same reasons that these Jewish people would follow after Jesus. Not even all of them were Jewish. He would go through Samaria, and the people of Samaria would come after him. But they follow after Jesus because of the perks that it brings. You think, well, what perks? Oftentimes you hear people say, well, my life seems happier when I go to church. My family seems more peaceful 
after we've spent a day in the worship sanctuary. I, be, I, I tend to be more successful at work, etc. They're all following after him because they feel like it just forgives, it gives them something. It gives them a meaning of life without the reality of saying, I've ever possessed this gift. I like the idea of Jesus because of what it brings to me and my family or my home. But it also gives us another side when I talk about having that perspective. Who are the people that God has placed in your life? Sometimes when we think about these opportunities and seeing the crowd, when we, Jesus oftentimes, when he, when he turns, he has, He's moved with compassion. He sees their hearts. He sees these lost sheep looking for, looking for truth, looking for answers. And He knows He's to give it to them. As I mentioned in our terms that there are gospel opportunities that God presents in our life. Do we see people as gospel opportunities? Have you met your neighbor? We live in a society where our garage door goes up, our vehicles go in, the garage door comes down, and I might go in the backyard. But I sure don't go out the front door. I paint houses on the side, and it always fascinates me when I go to a house that I'm painting and I walk up to the front door and I see so much spam trash, business cars, landscaping, pizza, you know, coupons, all these things that are at the front door. You know what that tells me? They don't ever use the front door. <laughs> they go in the garage. Now, there's nothing wrong with keeping your vehicle in the garage and doing all, you know, that's, that's good stuff. But the reality is sometimes maybe God has placed you in your neighborhood for a reason. Maybe it's that neighbor that's right next door that gets on your nerves or complains about every aspect of your, of your lawn. Or that you're too loud, your kids are too noisy at night. We tend to look at people and we think, well, they're not really like me, so I must not really have to be, be all that friendly to them. Or we put stipulations on what those are. And thinking through it, well, you know, they're kind of weird. <clears throat> I don't really uh, want to be associated with them because they're, I mean, you just got to know. You just got to see them to be understanding what I'm talking about. And yet Jesus, with a heart of compassion, he turns and he speaks to these individuals, knowing that he's got something important that he wants to tell them. Who are the people in your life? Maybe it's a coworker who nitpicks every aspect of your job. Maybe it's a boss who you just can't seem to do enough to make him proud or her proud. Maybe it's an, a, a, an employee underneath you that says, I can do my job better than you can, or your job better than you can. And we put these fences and these walls up. and says, well, yeah, the gospel's for everyone, but really not for you. Jesus starts with a heart of compassion. He begins with the multitudes coming from every which direction. Not just one crowd, but crowds in every, every turn. Then he's going to begin as he enters his heart of compassion with a heart and a message that's direct. 
Number two, let's look at it. If we're going to have a new perspective on the details of our life, we must see the commitment that Jesus is requiring of us. Number two, verse 26. If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. He begins with anyone comes to me, meaning that you are, you are taking the action, you are being proactive in coming to him. The Holy Spirit draws us, but I must make the action to say, I got to go. I must come. It does convey the idea that one must believe in Him. Folks, this message of what we're talking about really isn't for the unsaved. If anyone comes to Him, it requires us to really come on His terms. I've mentioned it a few times, the Christ of Christmas, that He came and He, he gave of Himself. He humbled Himself to take on the form of man to appease the wrath of God. Why is that necessary? Because of our sinful state. As Romans chapter 3, verse 23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Our sin separates us from the holiness of God and the desire that God has to have a relationship with us. Our sin requires a, a sacrifice, a, a penalty, a cost. We all know that sin has a cost. We see that in our justice system. We see that even in our own, our own parenting. You know, I didn't have to teach my son, Eddie, or my, my daughter, Lynn Ray, how to, be kind, how to be mean to one another. You know, I didn't have to sit down with Eddie and Lynn Ray one day and say, you know what, I am so sick and tired of how you guys share with one another. I am so sick and tired of how you are always so encouraging with your words. I'm so sick and tired of how you just keep each other, you're, you're just so kind and loving to one another. Will you stop it? Let me teach you how to take that toy from her. Let me teach you how to be mean and really get it in. No, it's the opposite, isn't it? It's the fact that I have to sit down with the two of them and say, I'm so sick and tired of you not sharing with one another. Let me show how to be kind. Let me tell you what God requires of us, what God desires that we please Him by using kind words. I know you can sympathize with that because I know you experienced the same thing. We didn't have to teach our kids how to lie to us, did we? I didn't eat that. I didn't take that. <laughs> the evidence is all right here. Right? There's a payment for our sin. There's a cost for our sin. And God says that payment is death to be separated from God for eternity. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. Oh, praise God for the gift. For God so loved the world. You know you could put your name right there. I love to be reminded of that. That God so loved Jason McDonald. That he gave his only, his one of a kind, begotten son. There will be no other like it, ever. That whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus is expressly giving this idea as he comes to verse 26, if any man comes to me, you must believe in him. You must acknowledge him as your Lord and Savior. You must possess him and place your faith and trust in him. Any man comes to me, 
And he gives, here's what the commitment is. And he hates not his father and his mother, his brother and sister, his children, himself also. He cannot be my disciple. That's pretty straightforward and pretty harsh, don't you think? I mean, I thought Jesus would tell us to love one another. Why is he telling me to hate? Let me explain why Jesus is saying, Mark, if you were to take over to read the similar passage as given in Matthew chapter 10, you would find that Jesus isn't as, as direct in Matthew chapter 10 as he is here in Luke. In Luke chapter 14 here, he's in a much direct, more direct fashion to the way he's given this. And the idea of what Jesus is saying is that when you have a love for me, my love, your love for me should be so supreme of such priority that your love for everything else looks like hatred. So what is he saying? He's saying, men, if you love me, your love for your wife will actually pale in, in respect to this. That doesn't sound very encouraging at the moment. Or if you have a, 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 such a love for me that your love for your children actually pales in comparison to me. It's not a literal hatred for the family. But it does convey the idea that Jesus is so supreme in one's life that familial relationships look like hate. It literally means to love less. Can I tell you, though, as a part of this commitment, it's not that I'm going to look at my wife and say, you know what, you know, Jesus is more important. I don't want to look at you. No, no, that's not it at all. The reality is when my faith or my when my priorities are, are so focused on Christ, it doesn't create a greater animosity towards my family and my friends. When I love Christ supremely, I actually find it deepens my love for my spouse. It deepens my love for my family. It deepens my love for my friends. Why? Because the simple trick is this, that when I love Jesus, I want to honor Jesus. I want to please Jesus, which means I have to know who He is. And folks, when you're able to get to know who He is, you've got to be in His Word. You've got to know what He says. And when I love someone, I want to love in the way that they love. I want to love in the way they want to be loved. And yet Jesus gives us the whole love letter here that describes what that looks like. So I find, let me just give an example, that when I'm deeply in love with my Savior, in those moments where I might want to argue and, and bicker with my spouse, the Spirit's working in my life saying, let's think of encouraging words. A soft answer turns away wrath, but harsh words stir up strife. Or, you know what? <clears throat> Instead of shifting the blame on why I made the choice that I did, you know, honey, I got to ask for forgiveness. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have done that. When love for Christ is supreme, my love for my, relation, my relationship with my spouse, my family, my friends are actually greater. 
And what they see is the love of Christ in and through you. And it becomes attractive. Being a youth pastor for so long, I get the response, well, if I'm really going to love Jesus with all my heart, my soul, my mind, it means I'm just going to be weird. No, folks, this is it right here. When I love Jesus supremely, it doesn't make me weird. It means that there's an attraction about me because of the way Christ interacts in my life that actually makes it an attraction. There's something different about you. You don't respond in the way that normal people should respond, that we would think you ought to respond. You respond in a way that's so loving. What is that difference? You know what you just created for yourself? It's that third term, right? A gospel opportunity. Jesus says, if you don't hate your father, your mother, your wife and children and brothers and sisters, yea, in your own life. <laughs> that's the hardest of it all, isn't it? I think that's why he gives that yay aspect. <laughs> Let me emphasize this. Because we are the most selfish individuals to ourselves, aren't we? I want what I want. I'm going to get what I want. I'm going to do what I want. I might have a heart of compassion for those around me, but ultimately it is so that I can satisfy the cravings that are in my own life more than where you're at. It's almost like there's always a quid pro quo to every action that we take, isn't there? I'm going to scratch your back so I know later on down the road you can scratch mine. No, the heart of Jesus is what he's saying is here. I'm going to hate my life. I want Jesus to be of supreme so that when that time comes where I'm tempted to use that scratch your back so I can, I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine later. Actually, he says, you know what? I'm going to scratch your back because I love you. And I'm not looking for anything in return. I'm going to give of myself, my possessions, my talents, so that Christ is magnified and that others see Christ in and through me, the hope of glory. Let's look at number three, verse 27. We have the crowds having a fresh perspective, a new perspective on the details of our life of being a follower of Jesus. I see people differently. I have to see the commitment that Jesus is to be supreme that when I love Jesus with all my heart, my soul, my mind, it really does look like hatred towards everything else that I have in my life. Not, an, not to bring animosity towards anything, but really that it pales in comparison to the priority. He says in verse 27, the cross gives me a fresh perspective, a new perspective on the cross. And whosoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. You say, well, Jason, he hasn't even gone to the cross, so why is he using the cross here? He knows where he's about to go. He knows the death that he's going to pay for us. He knows the reality and, and the shame that it's going to bring. But I think Jesus doesn't bring the cross here as, as, a, as a foretelling of what he's doing. He's bringing the cross as an aspect of that commitment saying, if you're going to understand what it means to follow, be a follower of me, having a fresh perspective on this, you have to understand the most shameful punishment a Jew could go through. And that's the death on a cross. He, Jesus moves from come to me 
to come after me in verse 27. You've given your life to him. You've come to him on his terms. But this commitment and understanding the cross means I'm moving on from seeing Jesus as a get-out-of-hell-free card to a lifestyle commitment. Come after me. Follow me. It implies the follower is now completely trusting in Jesus' atoning work. That he has a personal relationship with the Father because of trusting in Jesus and that his desire is to live for him. So what does the cross represent? It It represents a symbol of suffering and shame. It wouldn't be hard for us in our perspective of, of being able to read the entirety of Scripture to pull, flip the pages over to Luke 22 and see the reality of the cross. To read the gospel events and the stories of Christ on the cross and to see the shame that would be presented with it. The shame in such a way that even His own disciples would flee for their own life. the ones that He had poured His life into for three and a half years of ministry, only to be abandoned on a single night. It epitomizes the sacrifices required of a disciple in following Jesus, saying, I'm willing to bear it all. I think a lot of times we like the idea of serving Jesus when it's convenient to my life. When Jesus is convenient to my pocketbook, when Jesus is convenient to my relationships, those are the easy times to follow after Him. But folks, if you're going to have this fresh perspective on understanding the details of what Jesus wants in our life, then it means, you know what, there might be some times where that relationship is going to be broken because I understand the gospel opportunity God has placed before me. It might mean that there might be a sacrifice in my pocketbook, not because I'm being unwise in my spending, but because God is trying to grab a hold of my heart and my attention so that the gospel could go forth in and through me through somebody else. It might mean that I'm sacrificing time to do something I absolutely love and hop and cherish so that when another person seems inconvenient in my life, they can see the hope of Christ in and through me. I'm giving Him my all. It's dying daily to self and submitting oneself to the Lordship of Christ. It begins with you, personally. No one else can make this choice for you. Oh, how as a dad, I wish I could, I could place Christ into my kid's heart. As a brother, how I wish I could place Christ in my sibling's heart. As a son and as a loved one, how I wish... I could just take Christ and implant it into their hearts. I can't do it. 
The only one that can make that decision is them. No one else can make this this choice for you. Being a follower after Jesus, being a disciple of Jesus, isn't just about trusting Him as your Lord and Savior. It's simply saying, I'm going to commit my life to Him. And the same response that if I can't do that for you. I can encourage you along the way. As you interact and have conversation, I think, wow, praise the Lord for that gospel opportunity. Look at that. How cool is that, that God opened that door that way? Or I'm really sorry that you're going through this, but let me give you a perspective that I see. It seems the common denominator is this individual you keep talking about. Maybe God's allowing you to go through this so that they can see Christ. Maybe God's placed you in the neighborhood He's placed you in so you can keep your garage door open, not so things get stolen, but that you can build relationships with your neighbors. So you actually know their neighbors by name, not by habits. It's wholehearted. Dying daily to self and submitting oneself to the Lordship of Christ means I do it wholeheartedly. I completely trust in Him. It means I cannot have one foot in and one foot out. I'm going to try this for a time, and if it seems like it's going to work, then I'll jump all in. But if it doesn't, I haven't really risked all that much. It doesn't work that way, folks. And people read right through it. It's the greatest answer sometimes that we feel like we have no response to when they say, well, you're just a hypocrite. When you're standing with one foot in and one foot out, absolutely. And all you have are excuses for why you are that way. As opposed to saying, you know what, I do struggle. I still have my sin nature. You're right. But because of Christ and His work in my heart and my life, I'm really striving to work hard on not being that individual. I value this relationship that I have with you. And I want to be honest, and I'm working on that. Thank you for pointing that out. I'm all in. It's permanent. Praise God, isn't it? When I place my faith and trust in Christ, no one can take that from me. It's permanent. There is no turning back. Being a disciple, though, understanding, I need to remind myself, there is no turning back. I'm in this for Christ's glory. It's repentant. Turning away from old practices of sin. Oh, how we need to be reminded I have been saved. I have a new body, a new possession, a new place in Christ. I don't need to give in to the flesh. Although we know the reality is I'm going to. And when those times come and when those moments happen, oh, I let the Holy Spirit do its work in my heart and prick and poke, and I respond, thank you, Jesus for not letting me 
sulk and, and really dig into the sin. But that at the moment I'm given into it, you're convicting my heart of it, and I need to get rid of it. I need to move forward. I want Christ to be magnified. I'm turning away old practices of sin. Old things are passed away. Behold, all have become new to the believer. And it's obedience. It's saying, yes, Lord, yes. There's a little chorus that speaks of that same way. I'll say, yes, Lord, yes, to your will and to your ways. I'll say, yes, Lord, yes, I will trust you and obey. And I love the end of this chorus here. When your spirit speaks to me, with my whole heart I'll agree. And my answer will be yes, Lord, yes. It's responding in obedience. Yes, Lord, yes. But you know what that obedience means? I can't pick and choose what I'm going to obey from Scripture. I think we like to do that, right? Oh, how easy it is to, to take the things of, of, of God's Word and say, oh yeah, that fits into my life. I'm going to do that. I'm going to have the fruit of the Spirit. I'm doing really good with this. But to hate my brother or to, to, to speak with a soft answer, oh, I can't do that. He must be talking about somebody else. No, if I'm going to really follow after Jesus and be wholeheartedly devoted to Him and to be responding in obedience means I take all of Scripture and I say, yes, Lord, yes, would you speak to me? And when we look at the cross, the glory of the cross brings us to our knees. Why? Because it reminds us of our own sinfulness and Christ's righteousness. It's the exchange that He made of His righteousness for my sinfulness so that God, His wrath would be appeased, so that when God looks at Jason McDonald, He doesn't see Jason McDonald. Because of my sinfulness, he sees Christ's blood shed on my behalf, <clears throat> declaring me righteous. And folks, this morning, if you have placed your faith and trust in Christ, it's the same way that when God looks at you, he doesn't see you with your sinfulness. He sees you sprinkled with the blood of Christ or, or, or covered with the blood of Christ. That imputed righteousness, all of God's Christ's righteousness is placed on you in exchange for your sinfulness, putting, it, putting on him at the cross. And it's good for us to be reminded of that. That I didn't just make this decision to get out of hell free, but that I'm devoting my life entirely to Him. The gift of Jesus brings us everlasting change. However, it will come at a cost. I think we know that. Verses 28 to 35. He's going to give two different illustrations here. And Jesus is speaking now into, into these two parables on purpose. He's not hiding the reason why he wants us to consider the cost. I think the reality of what he's doing, he knows he's got the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the chief rulers of, of, of Israel there listening in on him, looking to, to, to grab attention or grab onto anything that Jesus says that might indict him. And so when Jesus speaks in this parable, he's speaking so that ultimately when these Pharisees and these Sadducees and these, and these rulers and the scribes are listening to him, they're really lost. And what does Jesus mean here? So what are these two examples? He begins with, number one, building a tower. What contractor, if we could put it this way, what developer doesn't um, is consider the cost of what they're about to build? 
Before they even begin to build it, they start to develop the plans and they start to develop, okay, this is what it's going to cost me, so here's what I need to do to prepare myself for that. Or else if he were not to take the, the, the actions that need in the preparation, he's going to be left with a building that's unfinished. I remember for years driving down the, the 101, getting off at Price Road to head to church where I, where I passed her at, and thinking there's a building on the right-hand side there that was just a, a concrete structure. Maybe you remember that building too, and how many times I would think about, man, what a fool. How does this guy run out of money? And I don't have the reason for that. It's easy for me to sit here and be judgmental on that whole thing. But the reality is this. We would drive by. This is the example of what Jesus is saying. How would one think that becomes a mockery? Because he didn't count the cost. Or what king would go to war knowing he's got 10,000 men, thinking I got to go up against an army of 20,000 men. How do I be successful in this? Maybe I don't even need to go to war. Maybe I could send out an ambassador and go with, you know, plans of peace. How do we get a peace treaty involved here? As opposed to just going in on his pride and saying, I've got this. I'm going to, manufacture, I'm going to be able to manhandle these people, although I'm outnumbered two to one. It's not going to work. These two examples tell us, number one, that the cost of discipleship, this cost is not to be taken lightly. Sometimes the struggle is, okay, so is Jesus talking about committing my life to Christ before I place my faith and trust in Christ? I think there's an element of both and here. That you must consider the cost when, you're, when you see what Christ has done for you. The, the, the final cost is simply this. I'm giving up of myself, my possessions, all that I have. Not that I, I want to throw it all away, but simply saying because Christ is more important than the consequences to come. That all that I possess here on earth will fade away. I can't take it with me. All that I possess here on earth actually doesn't satisfy. It leaves me hungry, looking for more. But when I find my identity in Christ and I count the cost... I find that the possessions that I have really aren't mine. I'm just a steward of what God's given to me. And I want to give it back to Him and use it for His glory. Being a follower of Jesus means I'm willing to give up all that I have. I want Christ to be magnified. Understanding the cost and taking it lightly sometimes is the, is the reason why some greatly struggle to give their lives to Christ. A teenager might be thinking, well, if I, see, if I give my life to Christ to serve Him, then I'm going I'm to be put somewhere where I don't ever want to be. That's not the perspective of what Jesus is trying to get us to see here. And while it might be the case that God has a plan for your life, and maybe it is on the mission field, but the reality is this, that when I give my life to Christ, I am found at, at complete joy and peace at the center of His will. And I find that I lack nothing. There's no turning back from the choice. He ends with one last example here, verses 34 and 35. Salt is good. 
But if the salt has lost its savor, wherewith shall it be seasoned? What are you going to season salt with? More salt? It's done. It's neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, but men cast it out. And he gives this extreme caution an important understanding here. The end of 35, he that hath ears to hear, let him hear. As I mentioned, when Jesus is speaking this parable, these parables here, it's not so the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the chief priests and the scribes all understand what he's trying to say. He uses that phrase to say, I'm trying to grab your attention, and if you're listening, you'll get it. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Folks, that's you and I this morning. When the Word of God is opened, we have the choice. Am I willing to say, yes, Lord, yes? Am I listening to what the Spirit might be speaking in and through the preached Word? Am I willing to say yes to the conviction or the the things that God is poking at my heart and say, you know what, I think you need to give this up? Or, you know what, I think you really need to be more giving in this way. Or I think, you know what? that neighbor of yours, I think you really need to be out there sharing the gospel. When you put your faith and trust in Jesus, you become a disciple. It's not a program that you complete over eight weeks. It's a lifestyle of following after Jesus for the rest of your life. And to be effective in that discipleship means i got to look for gospel opportunities that God is doing. I'll go back to that term as we close out this morning thinking about that discipleship aspect. As you think about what it means to be a disciple, sometimes the cost of what is discipleship, we think, well, I don't really know how to do it. Just begin with somebody else that you, you admire and respect. And begin saying, you know what, hey, you know, brother, I, what, can we just get together and read Scripture together? I, I want to grow in this area. Can, can we maybe use a tool here that helps us grow? And you know what, you, you can grow with me. Sometimes we let fear be the element that drives the reality of why we don't do good gospel opportunities and see the divine appointments. Well, I don't know how to answer their questions, or I don't really know what to say. But when Christ is at the center of our life and the center of our focus, and when Christ is working in and through us, you find that really there's not a whole lot that you can't figure out. And you ask yourself the question, you know, I'm just going to simply begin with a simple conversation. And it begins by saying, you know, I'm not going to answer in the way that they probably expect me to answer. I I use this as an example of the the reality. My, My neighbor likes to swear. And at times there are easy moments in, in the conversation where he swears at no reason at all. Where it'd be easy to respond in that certain type of way. Or he'd ask me a question and I'll respond in a certain thing. And, and he'll just ask, why, wait, why don't you swear? You know what that is? Can you tell me? It's a gospel what? Oh, folks, we're sleeping. Let's say it together. What is that? It's a gospel opportunity. 
I'll tell you, folks, it's not every time that a gospel opportunity arises that you will always be able to give Romans Road. But it's why I made that intentional, that part of that de- the definition is that I'm intentionally building relationships with the intent to be able to share the gospel with them. If I don't know my neighbor, and I'm not building that relationship with my neighbor, it's going to be hard for me to go knock on their door and say, hey, if you died today, are you going to go to heaven or hell? But when I'm actively engaged in reaching out to my neighbor, you know how much easier that gets? I mean, the worst they can do is move. (laughs) Or not answer the door, but the reality is this. When you look for those opportunities just to engage in conversation, as terrifying as that is, It begins by saying, you know what, Christ, I need your help right now. Help me to see the gospel opportunity that's right here in front of me. Help me to look at life the way you look at me. Help me to have love and compassion for somebody else and others around me. Not to be so self-focused that I lose sight of all that I have in Christ. But help me to leverage all that I am in Christ and all that I have because of Christ so that others can see Christ. A disciple helps both the unsaved and the saved. A disciple means I'm taking my brother who needs to to grow in his relationship with Christ and says, hey, let's study together and work together as we grow in our walk with Christ. And then it features itself out in saying, go, preach the gospel. Be effective with the Great Commission, as Matthew 28 would tell us. So let me challenge you as you think about 2022. What are the gospel opportunities in your life? Are you looking for them? Do you see them? Before you can look for the gospel opportunities, you've got to possess the Christ. Have you put your faith and trust in Christ, acknowledging that He is all in all, He is the only one who could provide satisfaction to your life. He is the only one that could save you from your sins. Have you possessed Him today? If not, let me encourage you to find me, find Adam, find another leader here who would love to sit down from God's Word and show you how you can possess this Christ of Christmas. Let's close in a word of prayer. Jesus, we thank you that you were willing to die on the cross for our sins, that you were willing to come in the form of man, knowing that it was the only way to appease God's wrath by living a perfect life, taking on the form of a servant and humbling yourself. Lord, I pray that if there's one here today that doesn't know Christ as their Savior, that they wouldn't leave this morning without having 100% knowledge of what that looks like, what it means to possess the Christ of Christmas. Lord, I pray for those of us that have have known Christ, that, Lord, we would look forward to 2022, not with uh, aspirations of what can we accomplish for ourselves, but simply, God, what can we accomplish for you? What are the gospel opportunities? What are the divine appointments that you've placed into our life 
that we would be cognizant of your Spirit's leading and building those relationships so that, Lord, as a church, loyal for you, Baptist Church, that, Lord, we would rejoice in seeing many come to know Jesus. And that the testimony of Royal View Baptist Church would be, you know, there's something different about them. There's a light that, that, that beams out of that ministry. There's a love for Jesus like we've never seen anywhere else because of the supremacy of Christ that's working in and through them. Father, I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.